Act from Galanda Broadman Law Firm and Alfred Urbina, um, an attorney and a member of the Pasqua Yaki Tribe of Arizona. And my name is Jacqueline Keeler, and uh, and this is Wednesday Talk Radio. This beat and let my rhymes unravel, yeah. Oh God, call your cavalry because I leave stereotypes as casualties, yeah. Oh God, better call your cavalry because I leave all your doubts as casualties. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. The Finance Committee meets this month on August 23rd at Cider Riot at 807 North East Cooch in KBU Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the August Amzi After Dark, featuring insexuality, ultrasonic love songs, and death dances from the Panamanian Rainforest on Wednesday, August 29th at 7.30 p.m. at Amzi in Portland. What does the world sound like to an insect? Or a bat? You can find out by exploring the insect music you've never heard before in surround sound under the Panamanian stars. Again, that's Omzi After Dark, featuring insexuality, ultrasonic love songs, and death dances from the Panamanian Rainforest on Wednesday, August 29th at 7.30 p.m. at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, 1945 Southeast Water Avenue in Portland. This is a 21 and over event. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Cable community. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Radioland. I am Eldridge Cleaver, the former Minister of Information of the Black Panther Party. You are listening to KBOO Portland. This is listener-sponsored, non-commercial community radio. I want you to listen to and support KBOO because Portland needs it, you need it, and the world needs it. Ubalagani, boing boing. It's 9.02. You're listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Lisa Loving. This is Political Perspectives. Our guests this morning are Donovan Smith of the Willamette Harbor Community Coalition, right? Portland Harbor Community Coalition. They have a big event coming up on Saturday. We're also joined today by Mary Pivoto, Neighbors for Clean Air, and Art Williams, who came all the way from Kentucky for an important event last night. And I'm going to have Mary set up that event and give us the, the names of the organizations because you are so dynamic. I cannot move fast enough to keep up with you. So today we're going to be talking about the air and the water. Um, this is KBOO Portland, and we're going to open up the phone lines after a while. But um, 
Mary Pivoteau, what was this event you did last night with the clean air? Because we're all seeing the air before we breathe it, like right now. Okay, so talk about the air. Thank you. Yes, yesterday certainly was a good day for talk about bad air. Um, so yes, yesterday, last night, we hosted the second of three workshops that are happening in 2018 under Breathe Oregon program. Breathe Oregon program was born out of a collaboration between Neighbors for Clean Air, Portland State University's Institute for Sustainable Solutions, and the Lewis and Clark Environmental Law Group, of Northwest Environmental Defense Center. And it came out of this collaboration came out of all of the uproar two years ago, February 3rd, 2016, we all remember the release of the Moss study and the uh, horror that people said, hey, you know, it's 40 plus years after the Clean Air Act and we have this level of toxic air pollution in our... The Moss study, we're talking about the, 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 the glass factories that polluted the air and had been forever. Right, but it wasn't just about glass factories. It was about the perpetuation and, and, and continued problem of, you know, all the toxic air pollution that we continually have in our city and it's ubiquitous and it's and frankly what we learned from the moss study if you learned about diesel pollution in our communities it dwarfs any of the risk that we learned about the metals in moss and in our neighborhoods and the problem with you know diesel pollution is a the sources are you know we we don't we can't just write one rule to fix the diesel pollution problem and it's impacting communities that are the most marginalized i mean we mobilized communities and we have a whole new state permitting program because of finding industrial heavy metals and moss and yet the proportionate problem of diesel pollution in the communities of color low-income communities in Portland still has yet to see a solution because it's 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 difficult you know I I want to say that it's also been sort of you know a, a continuation of environmental racism but it's also a much more difficult problem so breathe Oregon was a program conceived as a collaboration between great researchers scientists policy people and we're really engaging with elected officials um, and decision makers and the state agency to bring them in and start talking about what we can really do about these problems so our first event in March was deconstructing diesel we really looked at a lot more of the policy options we have and then last night was a, a really exciting and a, Um, program where what we looked at was general systems of air quality management. Two studies have been commissioned. One by the um, city of Portland and Multnomah County had commissioned a study to look at the feasibility of local air quality management districts, but also at the same time concurrent with that last year was a Portland State research team led by Dr. Vivek Shindez, who actually did an empirical study of how is air quality managed across the country. They did a 200-question survey of 117 local air quality districts and found out that this is a really common practice to create local air management constructs, whether it's a whole district like Puget Sound and or um, Louisville, Kentucky's program, or whether it's other levels of management that really address local um, decision making and and local uh, action. And so that was really exciting. That set us up last night for an, a fantastic panel discussion that featured um, the ED from Puget Sound's Clean Air Agency, Art Williams from the Louisville, Kentucky program, and two of our local uh, uh, city of Portland and Multnomah County folks who can actually talk about some of the things that they already are doing through their current authorities. So it was a great, you know, the program was called Air Quality by Design. Like, how do you create a system that better addresses and starts to reduce and, frankly, get rid of the inequities of our air pollution problem? You know, it's really interesting about what you just said. And if you just tuned in, this is KBOO Portland. It's Political Perspectives. I'm Lisa Loving. We're talking about clean air and clean water and what you 
are going to be able to do to help make those things more possible. But um, we had talked about the MOSS study, okay? Um, let's just say for a second, the MOSS study, from what I understand it, is basically symbolic of how hit or miss our um, air, and I, I will go ahead and throw water quality in there if the air quality is going to be like that. Uh, we've known about the Superfund site. We haven't even gotten there yet. But the MOSS study was when, if I understand it correctly, students in a U.S. Forest Service summer program or something like that they sat down with their wonderful advisor to do this textbook experiment that children do all the time where they studied moss that they found i forgot where they found it and it turned out that in that tax textbook children's exercise at the u.s forest service that um there was all kinds of toxins in the moss and everybody freaked out this was supposed to be a children's activity right so as we're talking about um basically what i hear you saying is now we can be intentional about what we even know about the toxins that are in the environment. And Mary, you've been talking about those diesel particulates for decades now. You have. <laughs> well, I, I stand on the shoulders of great um, uh, community activists who have been working on this, frankly, from the environmental justice communities um, for decades. Um, you know, people like Jerry Sunval Williams, who, you know, started the original EJAG that became Environmental Opal. Justice Action Group. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, they have been talking about you know, diesel pollution in North Portland in communities of color for a really, for too long. I was going to say and maybe 30 years. Yes. And so, so this is a problem that we've known about for a long time and we have, you know, failed to come up with the hard decisions and, and hard choices we need. And it is fixable. You know, I mean, the reality about diesel pollution as ubiquitous as, as it is, as multi, you know, sources, mobile and, you know, uh, marine rail all these things the technology exists the technology is you know what we're asking for is let's get to standards that have already been manufactured standards since 2010 you know this isn't we're not trying to like uh, you know do a moonshot in terms of coming up with some way to like shoot carbon out of the atmosphere you know this is really um, available accessible technology and we could have it today and it's just about you know political will and investment and so um so I think that there are the problem is is the the multi levels of jurisdiction and authority. That's where it gets really confusing. Is who actually has the ultimate authority uh, to make these decisions? And unfortunately, in the world of diesel, with all the difference between mobile, you know, whether it's a construction site is a whole nother, you know, the equipment that's used on a construction site that we're finding more and more of some of our biggest problems of diesel pollution are coming at these construction sites, um, as well as, you know, the trucks that move stuff and the freight movement and all the different things, you know, and, and, but, you know, when I started this work on the industrial pollution, which is where I started, you know, 10 years ago um, with industrial pollution in my neighborhood, it was frustrating. You know, the closest elected official that had direct authority was the governor. It's tough to get her attention. Well, this governor has been a little bit more responsive than the previous governors, maybe She's a woman, I'm not gonna say. But, um, uh, you know, but with diesel pollution, what we're finding is our local uh, municipalities and so our local elected leaders have more authority and discretion than they, you know, has previously been recognized. And so we've been keep going down to Salem and keep trying to fight this battle in Salem, which if you've spent any time down there, you realize it's not a place for great progressive policy. And, but when we're in Portland, and that was what was very exciting about last night, you know, we were led off with um, introductions by, you know, Chair Deborah Kafori and the uh, Tri-County Health Officer, Dr. Paul Lewis, who works with Multnomah County, to really to say, you know, this is a Portland metro, 
Multnomah County problem, and we have options. And and they really, you know, made the statement, and the city of Portland was there as well about what we can do at the local level on this. Okay, um, this is KBOO Portland. I'm Lisa. It's Political Perspectives. We have been talking with uh, Mary Pivoto about air quality. Um, longtime activist about this issue, and um, you briefly mentioned the 10 years ago, I think it was longer ago than that, with the ESCO plant and stuff in Northwest Portland. Um, we have been talking about the air quality, um, some of the particulates, where they're coming from. We haven't used the word corporate yet. I want to shift the, the lens to Donovan Smith, who's um, part of a coalition of people who are doing very similar work. I'm going to say it's not the same, but it's very similar work in Willamette Harbor. And that's a place where we're going to use the word corporation. So um, Donovan Smith, thank you for being here. Um, can you talk a little bit about your event that's happening this Saturday? What's happening? Who are you and what's happening on Saturday? Yeah, so uh, this Saturday, Portland Harbor Community Coalition is having a workshop. Um, and the workshop is called Fighting a Toxic Current. And we're going to be showing people um, basically how the Willamette River's uh, pollution has impacted black and brown folks, houses people um, for decades, and now how they can get involved in the fight to, to clean it up. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that in 2000, um, the federal government, the Environmental Protection Agency, actually designated 11 miles of the Willamette River as what's called a Superfund site, um, which is fund, not fun, um, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, but that means it's one of the most toxic sites in the whole country, which is like very contrary to how we think of ourselves in Portland, right? Like it's like all green and uh, pristine, but um, the the other part of that is that um, the pollution really affected the uh, black and brown communities and there's a lot of intersections of um, those communities so when we talk about like the most impacted people we're talking about Native Americans we're talking about black people immigrants refugees houseless people um, and of course like people who live in the neighborhood now um, <clears throat> but in this whole process you know like like i said it started in 2000 um so a lot of people um have gotten burnt out of this process because there's been no tangibles on the table in terms of actually getting it cleaned up the final cleanup plan came out just last year um and now the the fight is to make sure that one it just gets cleaned up but two, to make sure that like the people who are, like I said, m most impacted actually like are lead leading and steering this cleanup. And it's a complicated cleanup because like you said, there's so many corporations involved uh, and then there's public agencies involved as well. There's 150, what they say, possibly responsible uh, parties in this cleanup. Um, and so, that includes folks like the city of Portland, the port of Portland, and it also includes like the Exxon Mobiles of the world. Um, and we're trying to make sure that folks know that they're, even though this thing seems so big, so like uh, so much of a monster that they can step into this process and, and that they, um, they deserve to have a role in this process. Um, it's interesting to me to think about the different um, roles that you both have in your activism because this is a perfect example of um, basically people leading, pe people leading the government, which is kind mm -hmm. of the way it actually happens when that happens. But um, 
the things that strikes me about this is that that issue of jurisdiction, like who is in charge. And when it comes to the river, that stuff gets, I almost cursed just now. Whoa, stop me. That stuff gets heckin' complicated because the jurisdiction for the dirt at the bottom of the river is controlled by a different government agency than the sides of the river. And then the water is controlled. It's almost like, it's almost like capitalists got together and divided it up and made it hard for us to figure stuff out. I'm just saying that. Yeah. But Donovan, um, who is who is helping you in putting on this Saturday event? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a train. You're trying to plug people in to do activist work. Um, can you talk about a little bit about what you're going to be doing there? Yes. Uh, so um, it's Portland Harbor Community Coalition. Um, and so it's going to be myself and Alejandra Ruiz and Cassie Cohen who are all going to be uh, leading this workshop. So it's really kind of think of it as a super fund 101. And so we're going to just be showing people like um, a video uh, that was produced right when the super fund was designated and showing exactly how the river got uh, polluted. Then we're going to be talking to folks about uh, community benefits agreements and how those can be used in their day-to-day lives to like affect the the greater outcomes of how this river is cleaned up and in a way that is equitable in a way that uh, makes sure like most impacted communities are getting the jobs for the cleanup in a way that makes sure that like as this land that is going to be prime real estate gets freed up because of the pollution um, being remediated that um, is earmarked for black and brown communities division out um, and, and other things and also just like tying in their personal experiences um, into um, into this work and, and then showing them how PHCC has been for now like five years um, pressing that line with um, corporations and um, our public agencies to make sure that they they clean it up and do it in the right way and I think it's important that people know like PHCC like as long as this work has been we have actually affected things um, you know we we were able to help get the the most public comments for a Superfund site in this whole region um, a, a few years back. And we we have um, been able to, like, uh, be a part of the process to make sure that the city hires people to, like, actually focus in on the Superfund site, along with uh, other victories. So All right. Yeah. And if you want to call and participate in this conversation, I believe the number to call is probably 503 8187. I think I got that right. And I think we have a caller on the air. And we have David on the air. David, what's going on with you today? Hey, greetings. Uh, uh, Luckily enough, we got Scott Pruitt to resign uh, from the head of the EPA, but he left uh, behind uh, uh, Andrew Wheeler, who is what a coal lobbyist. Uh, But um, one of the things that Scott Pruitt did that was horrible was to appoint as head of the Superfund his personal banker. And this banker had been uh, precluded from ever working in banking again because of fraud. And uh, I was worried, as I understand it, this guy has uh, resigned. But um, the idea that the Superfund... finances could be embezzled and never used uh, toward actual cleanups uh, really you know got into the into the headlights there and so I'm wondering um, I, if I, I'm, I'm personally going on attack that if we were to 
declare the Trump administration organized crime, we could seize all of their assets as organized crime. Just what like do you call that? What is that called? A RICO lawsuit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, RICO, right. And and it would, you know, it could be done on a civil level, but it could also be done on a very criminal level. And uh, so everything that any of Trump's cronies own could be seized as, as assets of, of organized crime. But what I'm looking at, in in order to build up a case like that, it it has to be done on as much a civil, uh, a local level as well as a federal. So, if, for example, there are a lot of people in Portland that have been poisoned by this 11-mile stretch, their medical bills uh, could be, you know, calculated up and then charged uh, to the uh, to the polluters and to anybody that tries to lobby. Uh, uh, you know, against remediation, to lobby against cleanups, uh, they could be seen as, as some aspect of organized crime. Uh, if, you know, if a murder of a thousand people or 40,000 people because of pollution uh, can be seen as a tort uh, or as a criminal event then uh, or a criminal act, it could be, uh, you know, a, a portion of something like a RICO. Right. So, David, here's the one thing I do have to say about that. I'm really old. Like, you will not believe how old I am. And I remember the first time people were talking about Superfunds. It was when I was a baby. No, I'm kidding. I'm exaggerating now. <laughs> but the point of why we're still at this place with the Superfund sites and the payments and all that is that we have not been able to get these jokers to pay up in all this time. So I think you could probably pile anything else you wanted on that stack of what we're trying to get the feds to do and what they're trying to get the corporate sector to do, and it wouldn't necessarily make it any easier, although I totally appreciate your vision of using um, um, basic uh, legal remedies. But wow, I mean, this Superfund site thing, now you're not an attorney, Donovan, or maybe you are. This thing has a long pedigree now. Like if you were, you know how people tie cans to the back of the car when someone gets married and they drive down the street? If the Superfund were were cans on a wedding car, it would be all the way to Canada, okay? That's how long. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Just the I'm in, I guess I'm going to say the corruption of the corporate sector in just paying for these basic things, Donovan. Someone has tried to um, quantify the health problems, I think, over the years. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a, a billion-dollar cleanup that, that we're talking about. And, um, you know, the, the problem, or not the problem, but the hard part with our work is these uh, – these corporations they do want to get this cleanup just done and over with and they don't really uh want to engage with community and that has been the case for decades and decades and now that the cleanup plan is out like phcc has not been able to like get face-to-face time with uh the majority of these uh organizations and the the hard part with that is making sure that the cleanup happens in a way that one it like like I said earlier that it actually happens in the way that it's even spelled out um, in the final cleanup plan uh, because we've seen in plenty of super funds across the country um, especially ones that are affecting black and brown folks like they'll say the cleanup has been completed but it actually hasn't been fully completed right. um so or how you even define what is completed and what is not yeah. yeah and so that's in part because community isn't actually at the table for really any parts of the the cleanup um so uh that that's a a major thing uh for for our organization is actually getting to engage with these 
um, corporations. Corporate actors. Yeah. Um, and I also, there is a caller on the air, but I did want to say to Mary, I remember when people were arguing about, well, people were not arguing about the Moss study, but there was this point in 2016 where in Portland there was this, there was this issue about, you know, where is the pollution coming from? Is it these two glass factories? Because I mentioned those earlier. And then you're saying, well, yeah, those were polluters, but that's not the big polluters. Um, and then here comes David, and he's talking about, um, you know, Scott Pruitt's banker was the guy that was in charge of the Superman. We really are talking about money. We're talking about a lot of money for these cleanups. I wanted to ask you, and then we can go to the color that we have on the phone. Can you talk about money? I mean, I'm looking at you, Mary, and I know that's not your expertise, but you're, you're a businesswoman. You're coming from the private sector. How much money are we talking about? How much money does the DEQ already spend on not cleaning stuff up? Is that That's maybe an unfair question to ask you, but that's my question. How much money do we not spend not cleaning this stuff up, mm-hmm. but we spend a lot of money? We do know that air pollution particularly is costing us a lot of money in public health costs. It has, um, you know, a Diesel pollution, diesel particulate pollution alone, um, 17 uh, you know counties exceed you know healthy levels of diesel. It causes basically the diesel pollution levels cause cancer, you know excess cancer um, in these counties, and we know that that costs you know that, and it's not just the mortality and loss of life, which obviously is horrific to consider. It's all the other stuff in between the you know the lost work days, the taking care of a kid with asthma, and then you your job's jeopardized and your child is not getting the education they need. I know that the number one, you know, problem with absenteeism is um, is health concerns and health problems. Number one health problem is respiratory ailments and asthma and and kind of taking care of these chronic issues. And, you know, we're just not addressing this in our system. So $3.6 billion is what has been calculated as this public health cost. So there's, there is money. Is that in Oregon or is that? That's Oregon. No, that's just Oregon. 3.6 billion. Yes, annually. I can't count that high actually. So, so yeah, there, there is a lot of cost associated that we're bearing. The question is, you know, who's going to pay or, and, and to me, it isn't just, a, you know, it's a little bit different in the world of, um, for, for example, diesel pollution, because we're not talking about cost of cleanup. We're talking about investment, capital investment. How do we incentivize the innovation and the movement forward in an accelerated way? Because we know it already exists, the solutions already exist. So how do we give that incentive to, to get companies to feel like it's important for them to move forward? And, the, you know, it's pretty standard old style regulation. You put a standard that they need to meet and you put a deadline for meeting it. And then businesses have the, the, the glide path, they have the predictability, they have the kind of knowledge of how they build this into their business planning moving forward. And they have incentives. And we have a huge opportunity in Oregon around money. For the first time, money's on our side in Oregon on this problem. Due to the settlement, federal government settlement with Volkswagen over its defraud devices for diesel, passenger vehicles that were, um, you know, basically skirting the federal regulations on on emission standards. Did I say something about corruption? Go ahead. Um, Due to that, and because of the great ethos in Oregon, you know, we we use a lot of these great, you know, diesel cars thinking that they were better for us. We got a big chunk of that money, $83 million. And that doesn't, that's not including the money that'll go to the people actually bought the vehicles and will get compensated from the company directly for their cost of the vehicle. $83 million is just the settlement that says, you know what, 
Volkswagen, you have to pay also to help us clean up and improve the health of our communities by reducing diesel, NOx pollution, this kind of pollution in our communities. So Oregon now has the opportunity to make a decision about how we spend that money. And we're going to do that in the 2019 session. We've already appropriated some of that money. We took about $15 million of it to clean up our school buses, which was way unfinished business that should have happened um, over 10 years ago. And now we've got the remainder of that money, almost $60 million on the table. That money can be spent in our communities that are that have suffered, as you said, this goes back a long time. We've known who it's been impacting. We can make sure that that money is spent in those communities to, to be the investment to clean up, to work with the businesses that are, you know, and give them the, you know, opportunity to, to access the capital. One thing that's super exciting about the opportunity with this is that Multnomah County and City of Portland are moving forward with a clean contract rule for all public investment. And our clean contracting rules already really incentivize working with minority and women-owned businesses. And if we can match the VW settlement money to also give those um, minority and women-owned businesses special access to the money, to the capital money they need to have clean diesel and change out their equipment, it's such a win-win for our communities. Those are, those are people that are in our communities, they're in the communities that are most impacted. They get access to capital that they really have not been able to access before. We get cleaner air in these communities that where it's been hit hardest. And, and we're really using the public sector to drive that innovation because they can with their contracting because of all the money that we do spend from public. And we just really need to make sure that is an important initiative in the Portland metro area. We need to bring our state agencies on board. We need ODOT to commit to this level of clean contracting that, you know, if we're spending that amount of money um, and ODOT's budget on you know, projects across the state is massive. We need to make sure that 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 money is being spent for clean, safe contracting projects. Million here, a million there. Pretty soon it adds up to real money. You're listening to KBO Portland. It is 928. I'm Lisa Loving. This is Political Perspectives. Our guests are Donovan Smith of the Portland Harbor Community Coalition. They have a big event coming up on Saturday. We're also joined today by Mary Pivoto of Neighbors for Clean Air and Art Williams. He's an air quality expert from Kentucky. We have a couple callers on the air. The number to call is 503-231-8. 1-8-7. Mitch, what's going on with you today? Um, I'm glad to hear Volkswagen mentioned because uh, there isn't a whole lot of media coverage about the uh, the decades of uh, Volkswagen using Bosch Electronics to circumvent uh, air emission standards for diesel. And um, I was just uh, wondering uh, ha- how it is uh, are they paying public relations companies to not talk about it, or, or what is the view on on why this hasn't been a um, more under public discussion? I mean, we Bigger went through issue. presidential. I'll tell election. you right now, Mitch. Honestly, there's so many fewer reporters on the ground for real, and um, there's literally the Oregonian. Even again, just a few weeks ago, went through another purging of their news staff. There's something like twenty thousand fewer reporters on the ground than there were twenty years ago, something like that. And this is one of those stories too. The 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 um, the Volkswagen story that could be a com- commuter story. I mean, excuse me, a consumer story. It could be an environmental story. It could be a corporate story. But um, I think that that's, uh, I totally agree with you. I think that there are so many things that are not being covered intelligently, that intelligent people, we don't know what's going on around us. And um, again, 503-231-8187. Did you want to say something about why people aren't talking more about the Volkswagen coverage? I mean, 
the way our news flows anymore, um, stuff happens one day and I just totally forget the next day because some other, like the Nazis are marching in Skokie, except it's Portland. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the news? And we do have another caller, just a second, but I wanted to hear a little bit from you. What do you think about that? Well, I don't think they're talking enough about the Portland Superfund site. I don't think they're no, talking no, enough no. about our air quality. Um, you know, it, I, but it, it is because, you know, our news, local news organizations have been decimated. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I honestly, I don't think corporations need to invest in a lot of PR to keep these stories out of the news. Not anymore. Um, and so, uh, but you know what? People are talking about this, and I think um, you know our communities are talking about this. Our communities know about the Portland uh, Harbor Superfund site, and they're meeting and they're gathering, and they're we're meeting in mass. And we had hundreds of people, you know, last night and our event earlier to talk about air pollution solutions. So we're talking about it. We know about the VW money. The people that you know, and I, you know, people are engaged. And unfortunately, our media just isn't what we'd like it to be. God bless their hearts. And Mitch, the other thing is that I have to tell you is that a lot of the people that used to work at our daily newspapers and our TV stations got jobs in the PR sector. Mm. So a lot of the people that are not writing about this that used to be in the media are literally not writing about it because maybe they're working for that company. And that was just a super negative thing to say. God bless everybody. But it is actually true. And there's been studies on that. And it is a real thing. 503-231-8187. And we got another caller. Shannon, what's on what's got, what's on your mind this morning? Yes, well, my name is Shannon. My name is Shannon Henrichs, and I'm a almost 44 year old native to Oregon. And I actually worked with the AmeriCorps I Have a Dream Foundation in the 90s. We were the first Dreamer, uh, the first America class. And our kids did a documentary called the Young Black History Committee, and they documented all this stuff from the Vanport flood. All these underrepresented people of color. These videos went out to the Portland Public Schools. I'm not sure if anyone ever watched it, but they did everything. And I'm wondering how we're involving our youth and if it's possible to have youth media and also have youth service. A lot of schools have community service. It is mandatory for you to graduate. And I'm wondering how we're tapping into that because I'm a lifetime teacher from pre-K up to teaching at Portland State. And I think we need to tap into our youth because they're the ones that have a lot of voice right now and they can be talking to their parents too. Did you say, did you say the Young Black History Committee? Yes, it's called the Young Black History Committee. I still have a video tape, one left, of the original, and um, I've been wanting to digitize it, but I've been wanting to make sure that I'm okay and in my realm. Um, and they were amazing. They actually did all the voiceovers locally in Northeast Portland. I can't remember what the place was called. We basically settled them around, and what the kids found, um, the, the, it started at Tubman Middle School, and the kids said, well, our, our history is not represented. And we're like, great, what are you going to do about it? And they're like, what do you mean? What can we do about it? And we're like, you can change it. So what do you want to do? And they sat down, a group of them, and pulled in from other other schools. So I was at Beaumont, Tubman, Portsmouth, and uh, I think I was at Boise Elliott. I'm forgetting. And then I moved on to Benson, Jefferson, Roosevelt as my second year as an AmeriCorps member. And um, they literally did this amazing thing. And um, Marion Wright, Marian Wright Elderman wrote the intro because her, uh, one, one of her nieces was one of our AmeriCorps members. And it was like cutting edge amazingness for 1996. It was out of control. And every single social studies history classroom in the entire Portland Public Schools district got one of these videotapes. Mm -hmm. And your name is Shannon Hendricks. Because I'm finding yeah, you. Yeah. I'm finding you. 
R-I-C-H. Please find me. I've got a lot of stuff I'm doing right now, and I'm on medical leave. They won't let me go back to work this year, and I'm just trying to find my niche. Hey, um, so, um, here's the other thing, though. You're reminding me. So, I mean, I worked for many years at the scanner, which is how I know Donovan. And uh-huh, I uh-huh. found... Yeah, yeah. I found things in the scanners um, documents of um, AmeriCorps projects that kids did in the 90s. And there was. I have documented all of them. You know what? I bet that they did things around air quality too. Mm -hmm. We should find them. Anyway, this is brilliant. Thank you for calling. We're all going to turn around and look that up now. We're all going to turn around and look that up. Please do. We were in the newspaper, and I still am in contact with those dreamers through Facebook and other media. They're all over the nation. Some are still here doing amazing things. Um, so I, I would love to be in contact with whoever wants to be in contact. Okay, with me. <laughs> I'm going to try to find you. I'm going to try to find you. Thank you so much for calling. Yeah, just, go on, just go on Facebook. I'll write it right on that. All right. All right. And we do have another caller. Laura's on the line. What's, what's on your mind today, Laura? Hi. Thank you so much, Mary and Donovan and Lisa, for, for talking this morning about this most important issue. Um, I, I'm um, an activist, St. John's activist, Occupy St. John's, and I work with the Portland Harbor CAG and the, and the PHCC occasionally. Um, and we um, have been trying to off and on get a health study, a human health study, um, started along the Superfund side. We never get very far. We know there's a need for it. Um, but it, it never quite happens. The EPA, of course, did a, a, a health study for wildlife and fish in the water, but nothing about human health. And I know from my own personal uh, story and stories of others I know here that there are a lot of victims, cancer victims here, and a lot of them are dying off or have moved. So the longer we wait to do a health study, the more difficult it becomes. And I know that the Duwamish um, River in Seattle, that Superfund, they were able to do a health study, which, you know, I think enabled them to say that people who live um, near the Duwamish in certain neighborhoods have a lower life expectancy than do people who live in nicer neighborhoods in Seattle. Um, I really feel that's a piece that needs to happen, and um, maybe... Donovan can speak about this if, if you've done any more on that. And Mary, if you know anything about doing a health study, a human health study, I think it's really important. All right, Laura. Thanks a ton for calling. That is such an interesting question because I remember when in the KBOO newsroom we were covering all those hearings that were about the glass factories. And um, there was a man who was a, a neighborhood association president who was also a scientist. And I, his name, I can remember part of his name, but not his entire name. And he's a genius. And he was tracking a lot of this um, research information in drop, Dropbox accounts. And people were sort of sharing it out. Like what, there were a lot of people in um, the uh, radius, this certain air radius in southeast Portland that had cancer. And the thing about um, human health studies around the Willamette is, I mean, you're looking at the displacement of entire communities of people. So it would be very hard to go back and track that. Can you talk about that a little bit, Donovan? Yeah. And thank you, Laura, for calling in. Um, The that that what she said is absolutely right. Like the longer that we don't uh, test on people who um, may have been exposed to more that we lose kind of the the opportunity to see like which communities really have been impacted like we can look at other things like air that have been um, tested more and look at other health outcomes for like um, communities around uh, the St. John's area and black and brown people and look at uh, just yeah 
the usual outcomes with disparities and uh, kind of know who we're talking about. But um, it, it is unfortunate that the EPA um, and some of our local authorities haven't really uh, gotten an intense uh, dive in into our um, how like eating the fish um, out of this river have impacted our communities. And that that was one thing that I haven't said yet. It's, it's very hard outside looking in to really know what we're talking about when we're talking about the Superfund site and we're talking about the Willamette River uh, pollution because the Willamette has been polluted for a long time to the point where at one point you couldn't even swim in the thing. Now, like with the big pipe project uh, that the city um, led, uh, the pollution has gotten to a point where you can actually swim in the river. In some places. In, in some, some places. Yeah. You're not recommended to do it any old place. Yeah. Um, but the the bottom of the river, the sediment in the river is still highly, highly toxic. And so the, the biggest threat to our health at this point um, continues to be the, the fish. And we know a lot of the people who go out there and fish are like immigrants from different communities. So, you know, the Russian community is um, one of the biggest populations in Portland today. And one of our coalition uh, members, Vadim, he speaks about them as being kind of the silent population of Portland, because a lot of times when you have Russian folks come to the states, when they have to check their boxes, people say they're white, you know, but, um, you know, back home, like, fishing is tradition and they don't necessarily read the signs or can't necessarily read the signs out there um, that say don't fish and overall even if you can read the signs a lot of times people ignore them because it doesn't really convey how big an issue this is so people are going out there and fishing we know uh, black people from when we were contained uh, into that north that albina area um, that a lot of us went out there and fish whether it's just for fun um, or it was just you know people local fishermen For trying to make some yeah. sub substances and also people just trying to make a, a little bit of a living let's let's go catch some fish out here and sell it to people in the community um you know and and of course native folks right who this was their land for thousands of years um you know that that river at one point was pristine you know and it's really more recent history that it wasn't but also with their their tribal rights to the river you know we're we're trying to like work with them to make sure that as they're consuming the fish there uh fish that they traditionally uh never had a problem with that they're um you know they're they're having um that that, that they're that yeah. they're safe. Yeah, thank you. I remember years ago when a couple of men whose names escape me now, who were um, a couple of the original um, uh, Oregon Green Party members, mm-hmm. who actually also started the Yellow Bike Project. But they were the first people that went out there and just made signs to warn people that the fish was um, toxic. And mm-hmm. there were six or seven different languages, including um, at least one Cyrillic language in there. But the city, the county, the DEQ, they didn't even do that at all. It was private citizens that went and did that. And part of what we're talking about is the the failure of government agencies to act. And I want to say it's 941. You're listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Lisa Loving. We're talking about air quality. We're talking about water quality. We're talking about how you can get involved in improving those things. Before the end of this hour, we'll get more specific about things that you can do to get active um, on the Willamette River Superfund cleanup, um, to get active on the um, uh, air quality. I want to talk to Art. One of our guests, very quiet in this room, is Art. 
um, from Kentucky. Normally, I have my computer. Art Williams and Air Quality. Can you identify yourself, Art? And I'm only going to put you on the fit on the spot for a little while. Okay. You know, what are you doing here, and what are your thoughts about them meeting last night? Uh, a couple of years ago, a local journalist, Rob Davis with Oregonian, discovered that Louisville had uh, experienced some of the same air pollution problems that Portland is grappling with. And the Oregonian sponsored a, uh, an evening program to discuss air issues. And I was invited from Louisville because I used to be the city of Louisville air pollution director for a dozen years. And we grappled with some of the same I- issues. Louisville is a success story that Portland can look to uh, how a local community has successfully come to terms with air quality issues. Louisville, uh, back in the 1700s, 1800s, was one of the nation's largest industrial cities uh, in the top 10, uh, largely because it was an industrial hub in the Midwest. Uh, the Ohio River uh, explains why Louisville is where it is. People would stop at the falls of the Ohio and have to portage around, and Louisville grew up as a, as a hub there. Uh, commercial barge traffic, uh, we have a large airport, we have railroads, uh, we have all the uh, planes, boats, and trains um, creating lots of pollution. Citizens like Mary Pivato must have existed in Louisville in the 1900s and began advocating for Louisville locally to grapple with air pollution issues. So the, the Marys of, of Louisville pushed and per, were persistent for decades, and Louisville created its first uh, local agency in the 1950s. So Louisville has had a local air agency for close to 70 years now, uh, dealing at the neighborhood level with air pollution issues. And in particular, we grappled with toxics issues uh, and developed one of the nation's most visible and successful programs at the local level with local government people, working with communities, people of color, uh, to address these issues. So we were brought in, I was brought in, to kind of tell the Louisville story to help show that there is a, a way for a local community to successfully address air quality issues. They're very complicated. They require lots of science, policy, n- neighborhoods, and citizens to come to the table to address these issues. Uh, so that's why I've been here. So in so as you're discussing the, the committee that's existed in Louisville for 70, more than 70 years, is that a municipal committee? Is that it city is. of Louisville? It is. Uh, the city and the county are now merged. So we have, uh, have a uh, it's throughout the county jurisdiction. And we're the only kind of local air pollution agency in Kentucky. For the rest of the state, the state environmental agency uh, addresses the pollution that's outside of Louisville. But Louisville has kind of the first right uh, legally and jurisdictionally to address air pollution in the Louisville area. And there's um, been a lot of success stories. We've addressed ozone, particulates, carbon monoxide, and uh, we've br- uh, branched out to now address l- energy issues, land use planning, uh, climate change, because air quality intersects with a lot of these different issues. And uh, it's really kind of shocking to me as an environmental professional that Portland does not have a formal air pollution uh, agency, uh, there are over 119 communities, or about 119 communities in the nation that have local air pollution agencies. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be done, it should be done, because air quality is so critical to public health. And I advocate that Portland should have a, a, a more formal uh, undertaking on air quality, because the issue cuts across transportation, land use planning, public health, and um, 
it really just like water and wastewater have their own agencies in Portland, air should have a much higher visibility, no pun intended, uh, across these many important policy arenas. There was a high-profile um, candidate forum last night um, for city council. I don't believe this question was on the table at all, frankly. I don't know if mm-hmm. I've heard any candidates for office talk about this. Maybe Bernie Sanders did. I'm not sure. Bird flying in around. I don't know what he was saying. But um, it, 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 let me ask you this. Now we all want to talk. Let me ask you this. What should Portland do, in your opinion, to actually make that happen? Or are we doing it already? I think first steps uh, would be to just have the top leadership of the city, mayor, city council, uh, firmly express support for having air quality integrated into local government. Uh, You can start small. You can start with one person who's your air quality coordinator, and you give that person a seat at at all the important tables in the community, Uh, land use planning, transportation policies, land use, and you begin to integrate uh, the expertise, the information that comes from the air quality arena into the broader government uh, uh, arena. Uh, You don't have to start with, uh, like Louisville has a 75-person staff, an $8 million a year budget or more. You don't have to go from zero to that uh, initially. You can have a a planned scale up. There are certain functions that are important, like monitoring of the air, that would probably be early steps to uh, acquire the equipment and the, the staff that would help do the monitoring. Uh, you could do permitting of the agencies that DEQ now does. You could begin to shift that from the state to the local level. Uh, the inspections that need to occur to ensure that the laws are being uh, complied with. Uh, you, so you could identify the functions and figure out what are the revenue streams going to be, permit fees, federal funds, state funds, and um, just good planning, transparency, involving the citizens in how that's going to occur. Uh, take the first steps, commit the political leadership to it, and uh, and then proceed from there. Right. And what interests me a lot about when we talk about municipal issues, which this it's this is one of those municipal issues that um, links all the way to the feds and beyond. Right. I almost cursed again and said something you're not allowed to say. Um, that was a sexual or excretory function that had to do with uh, a stinky thing that you might do in an elevator. Actually, <laughs> I just explained that. But um, sometimes it's hard to have these conversations about the environment and the corporate sector and the intransigence of the government sector and doing basic things. Right. Because I've never heard that Louisville is the richest city in the world. I've never heard that Louisville is the richest city in the United States, right? But if you guys are taking the time to make sure that people don't die of asthma and all their children die of asthma, um, it just seems like it could be a priority. And then sometimes when I walk through the city of Portland or Multnomah County, you can't always see where the money is, but you can see where it is not. And it makes me wonder, you know, what is the gnarly See, I did not almost curse that time. Very proud of myself. What is the gnarly um, calculus that our elected officials are doing that they can't? It just seems like there's loud, um, alarming things happening in front of us all the time, but we're quietly poisoning ourselves. I want to ask Mary, Mary, as Art just described that, you probably have more insight into um, who does what around the environment in all of our regional government. Who, I mean, who... 
now we're I think we should officially go into the part of this show we've got 10 minutes left we could talk about what our listeners can actually do to be active on these issues so let's officially make that our topic right now and say you know so Mary you're listening right now you're a listener you've got kids or you don't have kids but you care about this maybe you have asthma maybe your neighbor does who are the agencies out there that um, that you should be calling to get on board with this stuff what should you be asking them well, I do think that the city of Portland um, needs to hear from more citizens about air quality issues and people need to start showing up. And, you know, they're not putting it on their agenda very much, but we can put things on their agenda. We can show up. We can sign up every Wednesday morning for those slots at the beginning and just say we want to at talk the city council at the city council meetings city council, yeah. and say we want to talk about air pollution. We want our city government to be talking about the air pollution problem. There are so many places that this is impacting us. You know, I mean, frankly, Tubman came up, you know, the, the Portland Public Schools is having to spend millions of dollars at Tubman right now to mitigate the problem of a school that's right next to a freeway. Some of the things they're doing are really weird. Like they're making a machine that sucks the air from the top to the bottom. It's like they're making machines that suck air from here to there. They're actually doing some really exciting things around Tubman, honestly. Um, because frankly, once they do the engineering, because we took a look at the the really high risk that those kids are facing um, from the outside air pollution, from the freeway side of that, the engineering that's going to go into the new Tubman school is going to actually make those kids at Tubman, and for eight hours of their school day, when they're inside that building, they're going to have the safest air in the in the district. Mm-hmm. Now, why does that policy not then go to every school? We have seven schools that are as equally situated, very close to freeways. Every single school in in the Portland Public School District should be able to engineer a safe environment for those kids while they're inside because the school district has very little control about the outside air pollution. So those are the kinds of things where, I, you know, I think what Art's saying, the decision-making around air quality is is not a, is not a single lane. It's, it's a broad, horizontal criteria for decision-making of land use planning, um, you know, building standards. You can build a LEED certified platinum building with the dirtiest diesel trucks and still get your gold star on the building, you know, because we haven't incorporated air quality as a value of our sustainability in this region. And Metro is probably the government agency that has the clearest path. It's in their charter that they are actually supposed to be uh, protecting the air quality of the region. They've defined that in a really narrow way. They've defined it really under carbon emissions and transportation sector. We can expand the definition to air quality being the health problem it is and really requiring our local government. But people need to start showing up to local municipality opportunities. They need to be talking to their city councilors. We need to be putting it on the the question on the agenda. I honestly think that we have a candidate for city council right now that could be the best champion on this issue. Um, I, I, I need to take off my... 501c3 hats, which I won't do. Um, but I, I do think that we have uh, an opportunity to elect somebody to city council that has been a champion for the communities that have been most impacted. And she's been at the table through the Cleaner Oregon process um, and with the governor's office on you know getting new, better standards for our air regulations. And so I'm really excited about that, that we finally have a candidate with the expertise and experience in this at the city. But it's up to us to come and make the conversation happen. It's up to us to make them realize this is a Portland City issue. And the thing about the schools, too, I'm just remembering that the last actual superintendent we had, who was the superintendent of the schools for many years, lost her job because she could not get lead out of the water, and she couldn't even get her staff to be honest about it. Actually, I think it maybe was the cover-up, not the crime there. Um, 
And now I want to go to Donovan. We've got about five minutes left in this hour. Um, and I'm remembering what awesome um, Shannon was talking about. Um, you know, do you have young people involved in your mm-hmm. movements? But um, talk about what um, Portland Harbor Community Coalition is hoping people will do and how people can get active with you and what you're going to do on the Saturday. Absolutely. So, um this Saturday, uh, again, we're having the Fighting a Toxic Current workshop, which um, I think is an awesome opportunity for uh, young people, but all people of Portland to, to really find out more about this this work with the Willamette River cleanup. Um, in regards to what Shannon was saying with young people, though, um, you know, the cleanup is supposed to be over these next 13 years. So if you take somebody who's in high school now, they'll 15 years old, they'll be 28 by the time the cleanup is actually done. So we need young people in this fight. I'm 20, uh, 26. Um, and I just got activated with this work about two years ago. And I, I think a lot of people like uh, you were saying earlier, um, do know about the Willamette River. They do know that it's polluted. I think, you know, as I've been in this work, um, you know, we talk to a lot of communities and you say, do you know about the Willamette River pollution? They say, yeah, but they don't know that they can do anything about it. And so this workshop that we have on Saturday will show you how PHCC has affected things from uh, just a groundswell of community support to like being in these rooms with like our public facing agencies like the port, um, like um, the city, like Northwest Natural and uh, what we're doing to this community benefits agreement that I mentioned um, a little bit earlier. That is a very powerful tool that has never been used in a super fun cleanup that we are trying to push that make sure communities um, who are impacted actually lead this cleanup. And um, if you come to the workshop on Saturday, we can show you more exactly how this tool can be used. But um, it, I, I want to say this. Before I was involved with PHCC, um, I held an event with another organizer, Laquita Lanford, and um, at that event, uh, we brought out Ted Wheeler, and it was his first uh, public outing since he had been elected. Uh, so he was mayor-elect at the time. And so as part of the event, we had a public uh, Q&A with, with Ted. And one of the organizers with PHCC asked him about the Willamette River, and specifically the Willamette River Superfund. And it was one of those moments where he wasn't really expecting to talk about that specific issue. And he said at that event, the Willamette River Superfund uh, project is the most important thing that's going to affect Portlanders that nobody knows anything about. And I didn't understand the weight of that until probably a few months later when I started engaging with PHCC more. Uh, if you can take that quote for the the weight of what it is and then think about how much more important it is for our communities to be um, engaged in that process, um, I think you'll you'll under <laughs> you'll you'll just see uh, as you continue to engage with our work. Um, how much um, this work is important. So, Donovan, thank you. what is your website? So for people yes. who want to contact um, Portland Harbor Community Coalition, what is your website? Our website is www.ourfutureriver.org. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the same handle, Our Future River. Mary Pivoto, how do people find out more information about your work and connect with you? What's your website? 
whatsinourair.org and we're also on Facebook under Neighbors for Clean Air Instagram and please yes join us and sign up for our newsletters we let people know what we're doing events and actions they can take and um, I think that it's fair to say that our guests would like you to be active listeners Um, thanks for tuning in this has been Political Perspectives I'm Lisa Loving we've been speaking with Donovan Smith of the Portland Harbor Community Coalition Mary Pivoto um, and Art Williams look for Bree Oregon look for neighbors for clean air and go out there and do something great today okay KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. The Finance Committee meets this month on August 23rd at Cider Riot, at 807 North East Cooch in KBU Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the August Amzi After Dark featuring Insexuality, ultrasonic love songs, and death dances from the Panamanian Rainforest on Wednesday, August 29th at 7.30pm at Amzi in Portland. What does the world sound like to an insect? Or a bat? You can find out by exploring the insect music you've never heard before in surround sound under the Panamanian stars. Again, that's Omzi After Dark, featuring insexuality, ultrasonic love songs, and death dances from the Panamanian rainforest on Wednesday, August 29th at 7.30 p.m. at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, 1945 Southeast Water Avenue in Portland. This is a 21 and over event. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is Bill McKibben coming at you on KBOO, Portland, Oregon.